Now, I want to put the spotlight on something that is very moving, and this on the back of a podcast which is recommended to us, known as the Bear Podcast, apparently. It's very popular. And uh, a gentleman who contributed to the podcast called Seamus Waits. And uh, Seamus is an important message, apparently, for parents, for families, for politicians, for the health service as well. Uh, Seamus, good morning. Good morning, Frank. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on the programme, uh, Seamus. A very poignant story you told on the podcast about your late son, Thomas. Do, do you mind telling us the story, please, Seamus? No, uh, not at all. Um, if it helps somebody um, to understand uh, what happens uh, during the aftermath of suicide, yeah, definitely, 100%, Frank. It must have been just the most terrific time i can't imagine anything worse than losing uh, losing a son and f- how did you cope this brings us back to 2016 uh, am i right with the date yeah 2016 so it was basically the early hours of the 29th of may it was would have been um thomas's birthday on the 28th of may so just to give you um um sort of a brief summary of um the events that happened, you know, so Thomas went out to celebrate his birthday with his friends. I wished him goodbye and that sort of stuff and said we catch up, you know, tomorrow when he comes back. He was staying at a friend's house. So um, basically the next day um, we didn't receive any contact from Thomas and I was out in the garden. It was a beautiful May day. And I was sort of getting ready for Thomas to come back and then we were going to have a barbecue with the rest of the family. Um, as time passed by, we still didn't hear anything. My wife, Karen, she um, arrived home from work and she asked me, um, did I hear anything from Thomas? And I remember what I said. I said, I haven't heard anything. Uh, throughout the morning, we were trying to contact him. Still no reply. And then I decided to go around to the house where Thomas was staying at a friend's house. And um, what I faced when I got there, I did not expect at all. I went to Thomas's bed bedroom where he was staying, and um, that's where I seen my son. And at that point, I realised that my my son was dead. Um, I touched his skin; he was cold, and straight away you sort of go into autopilot. You know, I turned around to his friend who was standing on the landing and asked him to ring the emergency services. I could not believe what I was seeing. And then eventually the emergency services arrived and um, one memory that sticks out from that day is the fact that I seen like the ambulance crew taking my son's body out of the house in the body bag. And it was something completely unexpected there was no signs of any mental illness leading up to this. He, Thomas lived an active life, a full life. He always seemed to be happy. You know, he didn't seem to have any massive issues in his life. And, and then, you know, it was an absolute total shock and totally unexpected, Frank. 21 years old and a fit young man. He'd been in the boxing game. He'd be, he'd been a successful boxer uh, and he was uh, someone who was into health and, and well-being. This must have been, this must have just been devastating. It was, Frank, yeah. Um, it was, 
it, it was hard to take in. Obviously, at the time, you just, you, you know, I don't know what happens to you. You just seem to go into autopilot. And you just seem to have, um, you just seem to move, you know. You're moving, but you don't even feel that you're moving. You're talking, but you don't even feel that you're talking. When eventually um, the police drove me back to the house and they asked me the question, did they want me to tell my wife, you know, the news, what, what had happened, and I took it upon myself. So I said, no, I said, look, you know, I'm, I'm his father. You know, I'll tell my wife. And... I remember telling my wife and it was so surreal. It was just so hard to believe. And then watching my wife's reaction and my daughter's reaction, it just, it completely and utterly changed our lives. It changed our world, you know, it, it changed everything, everything. And then there were decisions had to be made coming through, you know, coming, going forward about, you know, funeral arrangements and all that sort of stuff and you know and I took it upon myself to take that on board as well and it was a very very difficult time I was watching basically my whole family fall apart around me and in the back of it all there was like this image and memory of Thomas you know which I just didn't know how how any of us would ever get over this so yeah, sorry, Frank. Go ahead. No, it's it's okay because I listening to your accent, people will be maybe putting two and two together and thinking that you're living in London or Birmingham or wherever. But th this was happening very locally. This was happening in Macclesfield. Um, I've been living in Northern Ireland now for the past um, twenty five years. So Thomas was basically um, my family. We came over from London, and the reason for that is was we had relations in the area, and as a child, I spent. Um, a lot of time here, you know, I used to spend every summer here um, living with my grandmother in um, Macrofell. So I, I, I had an affinity for Northern Ireland and I sort of remembered all the great times that I had as a child and the freedom that I had. And I sort of wanted, I wanted to give that to my own children. So that was one of the main reasons why we uh, moved from London to Macrofell. And as I say, like, you know, Thomas, went to primary school in Macrofell. He went to secondary school in Macrofell and, um, as you mentioned, had a very successful boxing career. And, yeah, I mean, we literally, like, the move was made so that we would have more time with our children, you know, more quality time with our children and not have the pressures of constantly working, you know, every hour to pay a mortgage in London, you know, and that was one of the main reasons that we did it. Whenever, Sorry. whenever you went through the tragedy with, with your wife Karen, um, is Thomas your only child? Do you have other children? No, I, I I have a daughter Sinead, and she's absolutely fantastic. She's brilliant, you know. And as regarding like the trauma of what happened, it hit Sinead extremely hard. Um. It hit my, well, as you can imagine, it hit us all really, really hard. And the thing about it is, like, you know, there's no sense of getting over this. You you don't get over it. What you do is you, you learn to live beside it. And I can remember in my darkest moments, I sort of had a, a decision to make, you know. Did I want to continue living with this pain? 
or did I just want to end it? And I actually um, attempted suicide myself. And thankfully, I say now I failed. The reasons for this leading up to it were I was emotionally burnt out. I thought that by me being the man of the family, you know, father, husband, that I had to support everybody else. And after, say, a year of doing this past, I realized that I was in trouble, you know, emotionally, mentally, physically, in every single way. I actually went back to work after three weeks because I thought it was the right thing to do. I thought it was a way of supporting my family financially because although you have this, this, this terrible tragedy that's happened to you, you still have bills to pay. You still have a mortgage to pay. You still have to put food on the table. So again, my sense of, one of my senses of support in my family were to go back to work and to pro provide these things for them so that they didn't have to worry about that. But it was having a really negative effect on my own mental health and well-being. And it was my wife that pointed that out to me. She did say to me, she said, you need help. You know, I was becoming irritable. I had no patience for nothing. I was becoming bad-tempered. And when I actually reached out and asked for the help, I still didn't think I needed it. You know, there was this inbuilt thing. I think it's in all males, you know, that we're indestructible, Frank, you know. And I soon realized that we're not. I mean, during the early stages of our grieving process, I'll never forget this as long as I live, the PSNI contacted us. And they put us in contact with the Northern Health and Social Care believed by Suicide Trust. And I had a phone call at six weeks after my son's death asking us, did we want to avail of their services? And we thought about it, and we did. So then we were contacted by a lovely lady called Danielle Gallagher. She came to our house. And I remember Danielle sitting in our living room and us talking about what had happened. And being allowed to talk about it honestly and freely, without judgment, without stigma. That was such a gift at that stage. So throughout that meeting, Danielle, as, as I said, I let time lapse and I thought I was okay. And then I picked it up again, contacted Danielle again. And Danielle arranged support for me, counseling and everything else. I'd never heard or been introduced to any therapies in my life before. I'd, I'd never had counseling I've never taken an antidepressant, you know, because as I say in the podcast, you know, I'm the man, I'm supposed to be strong. So do you feel so, that more help like that is needed across the country? That that service that came via the trust, you, you obviously feel that m more examples of that are needed considering how many families go, go through what, what you're going through, Seamus? I totally do. I think that there isn't enough out there for support for bereaved families, you know, and communities as well, because suicide doesn't only affect the immediate family, it's, it affects the surrounding communities. And I think that there isn't enough being done. Um, if you take, like, our situation where we're not wealthy people, we're just normal, normal, ordinary working people, we have to face the death of our son in an absolutely tragic way and then after that 
we then had to financially support ourselves. And then during this, we were reaching out for help and thank God Danielle was there and the, um, you know, the, the bereavement service, because if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for that, I would not be here now. And I don't think, I'm, I don't think my wife would be here. I can't speak for my wife. She's a very strong, independent woman and she can speak for herself, but I personally would not be here now if it wasn't for that help that I received. It is incredible to, to hear that and the benefit of the bereavement service and the, the lady Danielle you make reference to and the people behind that within the, the health trust who, who provide that, that service. It's a reminder of how vital it is and the more of it that's available, the, the, the better. Uh, having said that, we need better mental health services, don't we? We, we need better services to, to protect the Thomases of this world. Yeah, I mean, I have, in my job at the moment, I work for the Simon community as a support worker. And I've witnessed it firsthand how basically inundated mental health services are at the moment, where waiting lists for a face-to-face meeting with um, one of their um, experts can take up to three months to six months. I've been in situations where um, clients have been in distress They've gone to A&E and within two two to three hours, they're back again. And then it's up to us then to support them while they go through um, that crisis at that time. You know, I mean, when I, you know, I'm, I'm proud to work for the Simon community because of the services that they provide. You know, people sometimes ask me what I do and I find it very hard to explain, you know. We do everything, you know. We support them through addiction problems. We support them through mental health problems. We help try and rehouse them, you know, and we we signpost them to organisations that can help them professionally. So yeah, I mean, what what a fantastic charity! And I know there's other amazing charities out there that do exactly the same work as we do. But it is the fact that. There is not enough money being invested in support for people who are in crisis. And I suppose in one way, this is why we make, I suppose, the wrong decisions, isn't it? You know, if we see no way out and if we're stuck, what other alternative is there? So we turn to substances to get us through that, you know, because we're not getting the therapy that we need. Everybody needs space to talk about how they feel. Everybody needs a safe environment where they can go into a room and where, in a sense, they're being protected, you know, and they can openly talk about themselves. That's what I found with counselling, that I could openly talk for the first time in my life about how I was feeling. And I'll be forever grateful for that, you know, I really will. It is very, very, just it's so beautiful to hear you say that, uh, Seamus. How, how, how thankful, how thankful you are in the face of what you've you've been through, and any other family who's been affected by suicide and bereavement like that will be aware of the bereavement counselling and the benefits of it, and hopefully they're aware of it. They'll also, like you, be calling for more investment in mental health strategies and mental health services and 
I just hope they have the strength that you have, Seamus, to speak in the podcast, indeed to speak to us here on the, the radio. And I'm sure you're speaking on behalf of many who just understandably, understandably don't have the, the strength to speak out because they're going through such a difficult, difficult time. I really appreciate you coming on the program, uh, Seamus. And um, it's a very moving conversation, but an incredibly relevant one to have and and thank you very very much for you for your time and i'm sure everyone listening to this program is thinking about your family seamus and thank you for coming on the program frank can i just pass on um a phone number to you it's um the northern northern um northern health and social trust bereavement suicide by the way and this this uh, service is offered in, in in every trust you know so if I can just pass you a contact number on, if, if anybody needs this help and is struggling at the moment, is that okay, Frank? Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead, yeah. So it's 028-944-13544. And can I just end this, Frank, by saying that, you know, sometimes we're not meant to forget someone that we love. We're only human, and there's nothing wrong with the way that we deal with our heartache. Everyone's pain is very unique. It's okay, it is okay to hold on to somebody in your heart that isn't here anymore. And just be kind to yourself on your journey through grief, no matter whether it's suicide or any other grief that you're going through at the moment. And please reach out and please talk. Thanks very much. Seamus, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for uh, coming on the the programme this morning. Very moving testimony. That number again is 028-944-13544. That's the number in relation to bereavement counselling. And if you're affected by the conversation and the wider context, um, we just remind you that the Samaritans are always available on 116123, that's the Samaritans on 116123 and the lifeline number is 0808 808 8000 that's 0808 808 8000 uh, 02890 is our number every morning for whatever's on your mind and we're always happy to include you in the conversation here